give our attention to the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. First, Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And then Revelation 21, 6 and 7. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. And then 22, 13. Again, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for preserving it for us through the ages that we would have it today. And Lord, we've heard it read in a language that we can understand Yet, Lord, we recognize that we need more than human physical understanding. We need spiritual understanding. So, God, we cry out to you and ask that you, by the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts, would open our eyes to behold wondrous things. God, that you would teach us and train us and correct us and rebuke us, encourage us, sustain us, nourish us, nurture us. Oh, God, help us in our time of need. Meet us here as we hear from your word and help me, O God, your servant. Protect me from error. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are our rock and our redeemer. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Of all the words in the English language, There is one word that can evoke feelings within us like none other. What is that word? Your mind's probably moving around a little bit. It's the word father. The word father. Some of us, when we hear that word, will feel a sense of thankfulness. Gratitude for a great father that we had or gratitude for the privilege of being a father. Others of us will hear that word father and we'll feel a great sense of loss because we've maybe lost our father to death or maybe we never knew our father. Maybe our father was absent or even worse, maybe our father was abusive or maybe we're just longing to be able to be a father in the first place. You see, not only does the word father evoke strong feelings within us, if you're anything like me, it evokes a lot of feelings. It's a cornucopia, we might say, of feelings that come up from within me. But of all the feelings that stir within me when I hear the word father, the one that rises to the top is a feeling of assurance, a feeling of assurance. Growing up, I was blessed to have a good dad. I had a good dad. My dad worked hard. My dad took care of our family no matter what. 
But most of all, my dad was there. My dad was present. I mean, he was there at every t-ball game. He was there at every basketball game, even when I was terrible. He was there. He was there at every band concert. He was there at every award ceremony. He was there at every graduation. He was there when my children were born. He was there at their baptism. He was there when I was ordained to gospel ministry. No matter the event or the milestone, even family dinner every night, he was there. No matter how far away I lived, you could count on my dad being there. I regret not appreciating it enough at times. I took it for granted. But his presence at all those things that I just mentioned is not what gives me my greatest feeling of assurance. Let me explain. My, my dad, he grew up in the church. He was the grandson of a Methodist minister. He was a covenant kid, right? He was in the church, but he fell out of love with Jesus when he was serving in a special naval combat unit in the early days of the Vietnam War. He rebelled and he lived his life apart from Christ. So when Jesus saved me when I was almost 16 years old, I began to have spiritual conversations with him. And most of the time, guess where they went? Nowhere, absolutely nowhere. It wasn't until my late 30s when I had had kids and I have the beautiful wife that I had that my dad began to soften a little bit. And he actually started to tell me things like, you know, Dan, there's no way that Jesus can forgive me for all that I've ever done. He would tell me forgiveness is impossible. And yet I would share the gospel with him over and over again. And he would never respond in faith. It's been about six years to the day I got word. It was December, 2017, that uh, dad, after dealing with uh, an illness for a long time, was being put on hospice. And I found out on my morning walk with our dog, Ozzy, and uh, the spirit moved in me in a mighty way, in a way that I have yet to experience since and prompting me to put everything aside, drop everything, get my family, put them in the car and make the 14 hour drive from Raleigh, North Carolina to the suburbs of St. Louis and the Illinois to share the love of Jesus with them one more time. You ever had that sense? I gotta go do this. There's nothing stopping me. So we did. Took the kids out of school, grabbed Megan, had her call out of work. We hopped in the car and we drove. And as we drove, we prayed and we hoped and we prayed and we hoped that he would be responsive to Jesus. And when we got there, families gathered, dad's in his room by himself. Megan and I went in there, just the two of us after getting the kids settled. And we thought we were going in there for the final showdown, right? We had our boxing gloves on, our Bibles ready. We had it all ready to go. The Roman road, we knew it. We were ready to share it. And what happened next is so unbelievable. That's why it's taken me so long to share it with you. It's amazing. Before we ever got into the room, before we were ever able to sit down, my dad stood up and said, I've got something to tell you. Jesus has forgiven me. Jesus never left me. I'm ready to go be with him. Please forgive me for all the things I've done. I, I, I'm gonna hold myself together. What a joy. What a joy. Dad, 
catapulted as some people do on hospice. And he stayed with us another couple of months. And I was able to go back, spend time with him reading the Bible, talking to him in ways that I never had. But he left me with a wonderful gift. He left me with an assurance of two things that he lives on in heavenly glory with his savior. That's awesome. But number two, that there's not one person, there's not one person so far out of the reach of God that they cannot be claimed or reclaimed by his sovereign mercy and grace. Hear me if you wonder about your loved ones or your children. There's not one person so far away that they can't be saved by God. Brothers and sisters, no matter what feelings we have when we hear about or think about earthly fathers, I want us to see and to embrace this morning the blessed truth given to us by our great father in heaven when he revealed to the prophet Isaiah, recorded for us in Isaiah 9:6, that the Messiah's name would be everlasting father the ultimately reassuring truth that our King, Jesus Christ, the the wonderful counselor and mighty God of his people would also be to us, to be to you and to me, like a father, a father who would provide for us and fight to preserve us for himself and for his kingdom forever and ever. This, above anything else, is our greatest reassurance. Every other assurance pales in comparison to knowing that Jesus will fight for us and preserve us for eternity. To help us see this, I want us to turn to these brief passages from the book of Revelation that I've read for you so we can understand what it means that Jesus is called everlasting father. So we'll begin uh, by considering what it means that Jesus is called everlasting. We're just gonna focus on the two words. Everlasting. So if you're taking notes, and I know many of you like to, we have two main points, and this is the first. You can record it as Jesus is everlasting. In all three passages here in Revelation, we find this declaration. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Now, for those of you unfamiliar, Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the last. Alpha and Omega are to us in English, A to Z, right? Or A to Z. This phrase, Alpha and Omega, used here, it's further amplified for us in chapter one, verse eight, with these words. You can look or remember, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. There we go, mighty God, the Almighty. It's also amplified for us in 21.6, this way, you can look there. The beginning and the end. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And then 22:13, it's amplified this way. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, in each of these statements, it can be difficult to discern who is the one speaking. To determine is this uh, God the Son or God the Father? And we don't have time to analyze this in depth. If you're interested in 2020 and 2021, I preached 40 sermons on the book of Revelation. And so you can go back and listen to those online where we did go into that in some depth. But 
we don't know who's speaking. So we'll suffice to say that the answer, who's speaking, God the Father or God the Son, the answer is yes. Okay, I'm glad some of you got it, okay? Answer is yes. Uh, again, go to eight. The words proceed from the Lord God. 21.5 says that the words of 21.6 proceed from the one who is seated on the throne. And 22.12 says that the words of 22.13 are from the one who is coming soon. So it's very safe to say that the answer is indeed yes. Yes. The words come from Jesus. The words come from Jesus who is one with the Father the one who speaks the words given to him by his father, as John, the apostle John makes clear in places like John 5 and John 12 and John 14. But even more, as we made clear last week from that passage in Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is, as that author says, the radiance of the father's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. So if the father is alpha and omega, then Jesus is also alpha and omega. So we don't need to nitpick those passages and say, well, that one at the end sounds like Jesus. The other one sounds like God, the father. They're both one God, three persons, equal in substance, power and glory and authority. So what does it mean then? Okay. If Jesus says, I am the alpha and the omega, what does it mean? Well, it means that Jesus was at the beginning of all things and he will also be at the end of all things, at the close of all things. It's the equivalent of saying that he has always existed and that he will always exist. It was as the apostle John says in his gospel in chapter one, it was through Jesus that all things were made. Jesus was there. He was there before this world was created. He was with his father in the beginning. Though he was, yes, born in a manger in Bethlehem, though he took on flesh at a particular moment in our time, time that he created, there was never a time that Jesus did not exist as the second person of the divine trinity. Now I need that blown mind emoji PowerPoint slide again, don't I? It's a lot. But Jesus has always been. He's always been the eternal son of God. There's never a time that he didn't exist. He's eternally the second person of the Trinity. Various heretics throughout church history and various false religions and idolatries say things like, uh, Jesus was created by the Father. Or, you know, Jesus was just a, a good man who got adopted to be his son. Some say, oh, he's just another manifestation of the father's being. He's just another picture of that. And to those things, what do we say? No, no, no. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. God the son. Just because we don't fully understand it doesn't make it not true. The Bible makes it clear. And so he is indeed the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He's the first and last, not only in his being, but in so many other ways too. 
I mean, Hebrews 12, too, the author there says that he is what? The author and finisher, the perfecter of our faith. He's also the sum and substance of the whole Bible, of all the scriptures. Jesus is the one main point of every book of the Bible. He's present on every page from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. Jesus is there. He's also the great fulfillment of the law. He's the one to whom the ceremonial law pointed. He's the only one who could keep the moral law perfectly. I could go on and on, but he's definitely the all in all of God's great saving purpose for his people. Think of 2 Corinthians 1.20. It says that all the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Jesus Christ. He's the sum of all of God's saving purposes. Friends, it's good that we be reminded of this, that it's all about Jesus. In many churches today, Jesus is talked about as if his life, death, and resurrection were some type of plan B for God's purposes of redemption. It was some last resort or panic button that God the Father had to push when everything else in the Old Testament had failed. But that's the farthest thing from the truth. As the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the one who was and who is and who is to come. Well, that's a mouthful, isn't it? That's how he describes himself. So let me have somebody else say it. Who says it so well? Jonathan Edwards in his sermon, the end for which God created the world, says it this way. Jesus is the ultimate end for which God created everything. That through him and through the salvation that he brings, that through Jesus Christ, the name and glory of the triune God might forever be magnified. The end for which God created the world was his glory. And he's glorified in saving us sinners. Wow, that's exciting. Think about it. In the book of Revelation, the one who stood at the beginning of time and created all things is the same one who stands at the end of the ages and says, I haven't changed. It's done. What we set out to do is complete. It is finished. Behold, I come again. Oh, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Jesus is everlasting because Jesus is eternal. And because he's eternal, so are the benefits of what he accomplishes for his people. I mean, going back to the original context of Isaiah 9, the kings in Isaiah's day accomplished many things, many great things. But their accomplishments were not of eternal consequence. But Jesus, the things that Jesus accomplished, they are. And that brings us to our second main point this morning. Jesus is everlasting father. So if you're taking notes, Jesus is everlasting father. It's here where obviously we have to be very clear and very careful, right? By calling the coming Messiah, who we now know is Jesus, by calling him father, 
Isaiah's not confusing him with the person of God whom we know as the father. The Trinitarian doctrine was the farthest thing from Isaiah's mind at that point. And even so, if he was confusing it, wouldn't that be a giant biblical contradiction? Wouldn't we have all kinds of, I'd have to like undo everything we've preached so far since I got here five years ago. It would all be turned upside down. We have to let scripture interpret scripture, right? So what might he mean? Well, I'll summarize it for you and then I'll illustrate it. To summarize it, he's saying that Jesus is the one who is the founder of eternity, the possessor of eternity. Or maybe we say it this way, the one who rules eternity. So it could be helpful, I'll illustrate this way, to consider the way the word father is used. So for example, here in America, what do we call men like George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, or Thomas Jefferson? What do we call them? Founding fathers, right? So in other cases, an extremely wise man might be called the father of wisdom or an inventor like Henry Ford might be called the father of the modern automobile. Do you get it? So saying that Jesus is the everlasting father is saying, and actually literally translated from the Hebrew, he's the father of eternity. He's the father of eternity. Again, I'll appeal to someone who says it better than me. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, Jesus is preeminently eternal. That to him, beyond and above all others, eternity may be ascribed. He goes on, Jesus is so surely and essentially eternal that he is here pictured as the father of eternity. Eternity did not bring him forth from its bowels, he says, but he brought it forth. Independent, self-sustained, uncreated, eternal existence is with Jesus. It is with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Spurgeon said, Jesus is the everlasting father. The correlation then to Isaiah 9, 6 is this. The coming Messiah would indeed be a king that was so much more than just another father of a nation. He would be the father of an eternal kingdom. The father of a kingdom that would have no end. His rule and his reign over it will forever protect his people and forever preserve his people for himself. And isn't that what we see in Revelation 21, 6 and 7? You can look there again. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. You see, an earthly king, an earthly king might be able to reign for a moment in time. An earthly king might be able to deliver his people from an enemy for a time. An earthly king might even be able to secure water and food for people for a time. But only Jesus, only Jesus could be the king who gives his people eternal life. Only Jesus could be the king that could satisfy the spiritual hunger and spiritual thirst of his people for all eternity. Only Jesus could be the king that eternally rescues his people from the ultimate enemies of sin 
and death. Only Jesus could be the king that secures an eternal heritage for his people where they will be forever safe in his celestial city. And only Jesus, only Jesus, the everlasting father of his people, only he can dwell not just with his people, but in his people. He can dwell in them by his mighty and victorious and life-giving spirit, the third person of the divine trinity. Jesus, the Messiah of God, is the ultimate provider and he's the ultimate protector of his people. He's indeed, as I said before, the founder and finisher of our faith. That's why Paul says in Colossians 1, he's the head of his body, the church. He is indeed our everlasting father. No need to be confused by that phrase. There is a father, the first person of the Trinity, but Jesus is our father of eternity. I'm reminded of the story of a young boy who like many young people goes to the bank with their parents and goes in for one reason. Well, they like money probably, but they want the sucker, right? So this boy goes into the bank with his mom and the, the banker hands over the jar of suckers and sees the kid's excitement and says, you know what? Just reach in and grab a handful. The boy looked at him and didn't do anything. So he leans closer with the jar. Come on, go ahead, take a handful. The boy was frozen. Finally, the banker reaches in and he grabs a big old handful and he puts it into the arms of the kid. And so mom and the boy walk out and the mom's befuddled. She's like, what, what happened to you? You're never that shy. Why did you not reach in and grab some suckers? And with his arms overflowing with suckers, he looked at her and goes, well, mom, his hands are bigger than mine. <laughs> Look at this. We spend so much of our time and so much of our energy seeking provision and protection for ourselves through any means possible. We even look to earthly people and systems to provide it for us. And in all of our striving and in all of our straining, we forget that God's hands are so much bigger than ours. Yeah, I understand he often provides for us and he protects us in this life by the industrious use of our own time and our own energy. Yes, he does. But that's not what I'm talking about. Because when it comes to our eternal provision and our eternal protection, all of our earthly efforts are in vain. All of our works of righteousness are nothing more than filthy rags. But the provision and the protection that Jesus, who is our everlasting father, gives to us just as Revelation 21.6 says, it comes how? Look there. It comes without price. It cost his life. But he's the one who paid the penalty. It's a free gift planned before creation carried out in time, applied to us at the moment of our regeneration or new birth, sealed forever by his Holy Spirit and enjoyed eternally in the glories of heaven with him without price. Brothers and sisters, this 
is the blessed assurance that each and every one of us here this morning needs. We all need it. And it's the blessed assurance we need to be reminded of each and every day of our lives. Many of you have been to my home, so you know I don't have any images of Jesus in my home. I've got an obscure picture of the nativity right now, but you can't tell it's Jesus. I don't have many pictures of him, but you know what I do have? I have pictures of my earthly father on display. Those of you who've had coffee at my house, you know there's one right by my coffee machine. My dad and I dressed all goofy, acting silly. It's just a reminder that to have any energy, now dad knows we need Jesus, right? But we need coffee too. But I have a favorite one and I brought it with me. You know, I'm famous for using props in my sermons. I have this one. Shortly uh, after we got dad's diagnosis, I posted a picture on uh, Facebook that just reminded me of my dad. And um, this was actually painted by my father-in-law who's here this morning. Bill's a very talented painter. And he sent this to me, I guess a couple months after dad's funeral. It came in the mail and it was such a blessing to me because this is a picture of, of my dad when he was stationed uh, during the war in Japan. He was on leave and he's there at the bar, um, a restaurant bar. And it reminds me that it was in these years that dad was running from the Lord. It was in these years that he was his most uh, adamant against following Jesus. And if you've been in my office, you know it sits just above my desk to the left. And I like to look up there and be reminded, not of the faithfulness of my dad, but to be reminded of the faithfulness of Jesus. How faithful he is to save the worst of sinners how faithful he is to lovingly pursue pursue those sheep who stray far away from him. But even more, it reminds me that no matter what feelings are provoked when I gaze at these pictures of my earthly father, I'm called to do something more. I'm called to fix my eyes upon the everlasting father the one who gives me everlasting assurance. And that is your call today as well. Set your heart, set your mind, set your gaze upon the resurrected and risen Jesus. Look to the father of eternity and be assured that all his promises to you will indeed come to pass. Every single one of them. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. And he will indeed return in glory at the end of the second advent. He's coming back. And when he does, he's promised that we will all be with him for eternity. And his promises are true. Every promise of God finds its yes and amen in Jesus Christ. My hope for you is that you not only know that, but that you live it out as well. Amen and amen.